0: Hello, I'm Dr. Nikki, and welcome to my podcast, Quantum Activations, where we explore the science and the mysteries of the greater reality. We will also be connecting in with some amazing evolution revolutionaries along the way. I look forward to you joining me.
1: Welcome, 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 everybody to this glorious opportunity for two doctors of very different kinds. One is a doctor of words and, you know, philosophy and ideas, and one is a doctor of things that can actually be measured and (laughs) evidence-based. Dr. Nikki, our research fellow, is here today to share with us the findings of her most recent uh, literature review for the Institute which is entitled and i'll just bring it up meditation brainwaves and altered states of consciousness and we're going to use this opportunity to get to know both the research more intimately and also our beautiful research fellow more intimately because i think even after three papers nikki some people probably don't know that we have a research fellow or what that even is because i know that is a fairly academic term but I would love for you to introduce yourself and let us know about your journey to this point in your own career um, and how you became the research fellow. And then we'll jump into the paper.
0: Great, okay. Hey everybody, I'm Dr. Nikki here. For those of you I haven't met before. Um, I'll just give you a little bit of my background. So I guess I originally was drawn to the esoteric arts when I studied, uh, when I first studied traditional naturopathic medicine, where it was, the you know, more body, mind, spirit. Um, and, you know, over time, you know, studying that and studying some traditional Chinese medicine, um, I really got a pa- Had a passion to be able to share just the quality of results that we're getting with people using these different sorts of treatments because this was, you know, this was in the 90s when not many people really knew um, that much about naturopathic medicine um, as well, which is really fascinating. Um, And, you know, so I went around the, you know, the universities to see where I could, you know, do some research. So the idea in my naivety thought that, you know, I could do some research um, on things that I wanted to in a mainstream system and, you know, be able to, you know, more or less support some of the, you know, things that we were seeing as practitioners, you know, in those areas um, all the time and you know um you know so cut a long story short then it had to be something that was measurable something that was a patentable as well so you know unfortunately research is driven by funding and funding is driven by you know the capacity to be able to have a commercial interest and to, and to generate more money and you know unfortunately things found in nature can't be patented so it, it makes it much more difficult to be able to actually get any funding to research what you'd like to fund but anyway I did learn some pretty awesome research skills uh, you know while I was there waded through you know a plethora of you know medical research medical texts um, I ended up doing my thesis on vitamins and minerals in enteral feed products. Um, in children with severe cerebral palsy Um, and then after that we did some um, did some education research in the medical school uh, the Queensland Medical School um, as well which was really great so I learned lots of really good research skills but then you know it kind of brought me back then after that time to what I was really passionate about and that's you know that that's helping people at those at those fundamental levels and of course the mysteries (laughs) you know opening to those mysteries of you know there's so much more out there than just our tangible um, our tangible 3D um, experience and you know so you know in in my further studies I came across the institute um, and you know was was just completely intrigued by what you were teaching and you know went on to to study with you for quite a few years and um, yeah and then it you know it just dawned on me I thought you know it would be really great to be doing some research in this particular area. And so I approached you and you went, what a great idea. And, you know, so here we are.
1: Yeah, and we're three papers in and I will share the link in the uh, chat as well for everyone to access all of the papers from Dr. Nikki. So really what we've done is effectively from the beginning gone, what excites us? you know, individually and collectively, what do we want the research? uh, You know, what do we want to be sharing through the Institute? And so the three papers uh, in in from the beginning, begin with quantum entangled consciousness then the second paper is autonomic regulation what is it teaching us about living at peace in the world and of course the latest paper meditation waves, and altered states of consciousness and yes your you know your history your experience i'm just dropping that in there for anyone who wants to grab those is really you know unparalleled and for me it was so exciting that you wanted to come into the Institute and saw value in what we were offering and then to be able to bring that rigor that you have as a researcher and a scientist and you know a health professional um, and bring it all together for us and you know if we had unlimited funds of course we would we would be so excited to invest but before we go further with discussing this particular paper I wanted to just touch on something that you mentioned In a really clear way, and I think perhaps a way that helps me understand it even more, even though I know that it's talked about and it might be uh, important for other people to understand if it's not patentable, then the research doesn't happen because it cannot make money. So nature gets missed out. So where the hell does that leave us in terms of ever having faith in the world of science and medicine to bring us into health?
0: Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) You know, I ended up leaving there quite disheartened by it all because, you know, I've really enjoyed and and loved to do the research, but we know everything happens for a reason. But it really, it really opened my eyes to, you know, the fact that, you know, the modern medicine, you know, drug therapy, you know, they have to have the research to show that they're not actually going to kill people, you know, so they have to be, you know, creating the research in that way. And of course, it's very highly profitable and um and yeah and so it's yeah it's unfortunate and you know we we always get the short end of the stick saying oh the research isn't very good quality the studies are really small and it's like well no one no one can work for free (laughs) you know we live in a world where we need to be paid you know to survive as well so you know it's yeah it's it's an unfortunate reality
1: it it is but I guess I mean I don't want to you know, get too far down that rabbit and hole yes. and I guess making the choice to work with people like you and investing in people who are protecting that knowledge, because one of the other things we see is then that, the, you know, natural medicines get banned. Um, and are made illegal because then, of course, it's not easy for people to get access. But there's to. not enough evidence. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's the, the rabbit hole, isn't it? Exactly. So, yeah. And and you know, potentially, it, it's all very intentional by design. But I guess that choice to work with people like you is a, is a rebellious decision. Then to actually, you know, ensure that we're investing in alternatives. Uh, You know, in the same way that if we all shop at the supermarket all the time, of course, we're going to end up with a monoculture where we can be hijacked around the price of a lettuce because, you know, there's only one place to buy your lettuce or thereabouts. So Mm -hmm. I know I'm sort of going off on a tangent there, but I, I think there's something quite radical about what you do. And it shouldn't be radical, but it is. And for people to understand that if they really want to have choice about how they approach their health, that it's not enough to just assume that we will always get given the best option because actually the best option may be intentionally taken away from us or never invested in to be explored
0: yeah yeah completely, completely um, but you know that said, when I started doing this research, and every time I dive into the the next paper, I'm always pleasantly surprised at what you can actually find out there, and you know it's almost like these days if people say, Ah, uh, you know that's just woo woo it's like no well, there is actually a a beginning to be anyway, um and in some areas quite a lot of underpinning you know underpinning evidence that is starting to you know that's starting to sieve through as well
1: yeah and we're going to turn to your paper now but it, just touching on that you know if we look at the groundswell of research around tapping for example and how they've now reached a point where you know they are almost permitted into the mainstream in terms of uh, approaches to mental health and i think you know that's been a good 20 years of of hardcore campaigning and private investment and really having to uh, you know, create momentum from a very grassroots level. Um, but it's there now. It's at that tipping point where it can actually be accepted in the mainstream. And I think, you know, it is simply a matter of that commitment of people like you and that willingness uh, for, you know, the Institute, for example, to present the information in a digestible way, because not everybody has your brain, (laughs) not everybody has your capacity uh, to go and make sense of all of this research. So, if you hear anything that Nikki is sharing and you would like to drop a question in the comments, whether you're here now uh, live or listening back later, please do. And I'm sure we uh, can get Nikki back or she can comment on um, any questions. But, Nikki, tell us then what does this paper, Meditation, Brainwaves, and Altered States of Consciousness, ultimately tell us? And, you know, what is most exciting to you in what you discovered?
0: Yeah. So I guess when I, when I first started diving, diving into it, what really fascinated me was the underpinning, I guess, the, the theoretical constructs around how they're firstly, how they are thought they would explain meditation because, you know, it's like anything that's experiential. Um, it's like, how do you tangibly measure somebody's outcome experience after a meditation? Um, and, you know, they, quite nicely we were able to look over many different traditional lineages like Buddhism, Zen, Vipassana, um, other yogic forms like the transcendental meditation, um, mindfulness and all of those sorts of things. And what they found was that there's almost like two opposite ends of the scale. So there's a focused attention, which is those concentrative types of meditations. You know, if we're focusing um, like on a candle flame or focusing on the breath just to keep that mind to keep the mind um, what they call in Samatha, which is quinescence. So keeping that, you know, that focus. Um, and then at the other end of the scale, there's what they termed open presence, which is like an insight meditation, which is more or less, you know, objectless awareness is what they call it. But it's about opening and just allowing I guess, insight to come, so without attachment and judgment on what sort of floats in and out, but allowing that through the breath to be able to take us into, um, you know, higher states of awareness, which is ultimately, yeah, which is ultimately what happens, which is really interesting, they found over time with practice. And, you know, so to definitively specify what does what is difficult because not only the different types of practices, but also very much um, related to the length of time people have been meditating as well so you know anyone who's a beginning meditator or even if you're experienced and you think back to when you were a beginning meditator that you know you're not always in the meditation (laughs) you know so while they are hooked up to these machines trying to measure this they may or may not be in meditation and that's you know that's one of what they talk about confounders that make it really difficult to monitor you know specifically what's happening but you know for the the end state for longer term practitioners are um, being able to maintain the practice in between meditation practices as well. And so they talk about states of being. So states is like, you know, that state of having regulated attention, that state of emotional equanimity, that state of deep peace and calm, which is sort of an in-the-moment type of premise. But then when we talk about longer term, it moves into what we call traits, so traits more like you know like personality traits, which is more like becoming part of the person. Yeah. And so what they they have actually found that with longer term meditation that these start to become more traits, and then there's an enhancement of um, wider wider states of awareness as well, and clarity clarity around um, clarity around perception too, which is really yeah. fascinating.
1: I love that. I love the fact that our meditation practice can then, you know, ultimately with commitment become our personality, right? That we can actually Mm. upgrade our traits. And so, you know, when we sit in that idea that this is just the way that I am, and this is my personality, this is my identity, it can't change. What this is showing through the, you know, making a choice to enact something more peaceful, more, you know, focused, more relaxed, more regulated, we can actually change our personality. And I think that is so cool, especially if you are at the beginning of your journey and you're trying to look for reasons to get through the pain of, oh my God, how do I ever teach my nervous system and my brain to sit down and just shut up, you know, like to actually have that long-term appreciation that this will ultimately be able to improve your whole sense of identity through incremental commitment, yeah?
0: Yeah, completely, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's really fascinating, isn't it? And, you know, even the reason, I mean, that said, they've they've done quite a lot of research on what they call mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is a type of practice that comes from Buddhist, Buddhist tradition that they first developed for use in hospitals, in chronically ill um chronically ill patients just to help them with their moods and you know being able to accept diagnoses and things like that and you know that has been studied so much now in in you know all different sorts of settings particularly around mental health you know anxiety stress depression um, and they were looking at um, even in the short term within thir- a 30 minute training of emotional regulation they found um, changes in brain function and then with the two months so it's a two-month program that they tend to repeatedly study and over that two months they actually found changes in the prefrontal cortex patterns and so our prefrontal cortex is all of our higher order thinking um, like socialization making decisions um you know clear thinking all of those sorts of things and that's only that's in a relatively short amount of time as well which is which is great
1: Yes, absolutely. That's amazing. And I think particularly because we know in those um, states of pain or depression or any kind of mental anxiety, we're usually not operating in our prefrontal cortex. We're usually, you know, out, we're out of that and we're in that reptilian brain and often reactive. Um, and we know, you know, this is also where that emotional and intuitive intelligence resides. So if we can stay present to that part of ourself even through distress or or pain or or you know as you say like a diagnosis that might be life-changing then you know that is mastery that's self-mastery and that's an amazing attribute I would love for you to talk a little bit about you know the way we work with meditation in the institute is obviously to open to intuition which which I'm assuming there's no studies that say the benefits of meditation for intuition because would far too outrageous. But, and how do you measure it, you exactly,
0: know?
1: <laughs> exactly, but the, yeah. I know that in the work of people like Dawson Church and Joe Dispenza, they are looking at how you can measure mystical experiences. Mm-hmm. So when we move into the mystical experience, which is really the function of our meditation, right? We are guiding people into devotion so that they have a sense of their infinite nature not just their 3d personality and yeah. did, did you find anything that correlated to an understanding of that or you know i know you mentioned that sense of stepping out of the or going into the meta level of consciousness where we're not just yeah. anchored into our personality all of the time but you know that that is so interesting to me to see whether it's measurable
0: yeah so they they, they do talk to the effects over time of changes in perception so changes in perception around um thoughts feelings and sense of self that was what one of the one of the kind of the I guess outcome measures that that one of the states that you know that is attainable that they've measured is attainable um over time with different practices um, as well and you know I guess That's. I mean, when they look at the brainwave states, it's kind of that's why they've brought in a lot of the brainwave research, because they've done research on recognizing what the different parts of the brain do and then looking at the different um, actual brainwaves and what they do. And so when they then correlate it to meditation, so they hook people up and look at the different brainwaves, it kind of gives us a tangible way to measure what is likely happening Um, you know within that experience uh, for people as well and so you know they look at you know a lot of the earlier research was looking at the the theta and the alpha so the alpha is that wakeful relaxation where we start to uh, where we start to get into that relaxation and we know that more alpha means less anxiety more calmness and positivity Um, and they actually found in the research that there's a lot higher levels of this in people who meditate versus non-meditators um, during meditation, but also after meditation as well. So that that's one that that's one that's fairly standard across the board. Um, and then what happens is as we start to go into um, the dream state, this is where in, you know, when you're not meditating, the alpha waves decrease in the theta waves. So they're a they're a slower brainwave state. And so the theta waves come in, and this is more the dream state when we sort of go in, go go into that. And during meditation, what they've found is that it helps with sustained attention, and it also has been found increased in um, hypnosis during hypnosis practices, and also interestingly um, during self-autonomic regulation, which is regulation with the breath. Um, You know that you just mentioned before, but that was the previous paper that you know, that we put out as well, looking at, you know, the nervous system and, and, you know, so is it the breath or is it the focused attention on the breath that's actually creating the relaxation? But, you know, either way it's that, you know, working with it, whether we're working with it through the breath to bring in these relaxed states or it is, you know, simply even just focusing on, you know, whatever else that helps to calm the mind enough to stop that, you know, that over-reactivity um, and things like that. Um, and what they found is that more so in focused attention rather than the open presence, because with the open presence meditation, they find that it can be prone to what they call um, excitement, which is over-stimulation, and then that way that's where you start to lose I guess you fall out of that state of holding that container, that receptivity, isn't it? For where the intuition comes in, it's you know it's hope holding that that open that open state, yeah. Um, yeah. And so what they found is that they get increases in the frontal midline, which interestingly helps with planning, initiating, and monitoring goals. Yeah. So it's you know within the within these open states, do we have a better capacity to dream our lives? You know, we talk about the creator states, the creator being, being the creator being. And it's almost like, well, we're getting an increase of dream state theta waves within the parts of the brain that actually do help us to plan and, you know, and and initiate um, goals. So that's that. Yeah. I thought that was fascinating. Um, Yeah. And then, you know, things like lower anxiety scores and and all of those. And what they originally thought is that meditation exists somewhere in between those states. That was the earlier research that, you know, they, they thought that going from alpha into theta, you know, that sort of at the sleep onset stage, you know, how that kind of gets a bit, a bit. they were sort of thinking that that's where the meditation space was. But what they've actually found is that in people who meditate, we can actually hold an increase in both of those brain waves at the same time.
1: Wow, that's really interesting because I know that yeah. you know, the last thing I read from Dr. Joe, it's all about mm-hmm. it's theta, right? Like you want to be yeah. in that 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 yeah. theta in order to go into it. So we can actually access it in different brainwave states. It's not just one.
0: Yeah. So and they found that it's it's actually having both so the alpha and the theater at the same time they've found in the more regular meditators are the ones that can relate it more you know the longer term practitioners for like over decades and things you know the old yogis and the buddhists and all of those sorts of things but they were actually found that this is what um helped with and what did they write um Yeah, so that yeah, so that that is what helps with that open, you know, with that open perception. Um, they interestingly also found gamma brain waves, which are really high frequency brain waves. So as we move up the scale, we kind of go delta is the low, slowest brain waves when we're in deeper meditation and dreamless states. We then go um, as the brain waves increase, you go theta and then alpha as we start to become more. Um, I guess awake and then beat as the typical waking state. And then they've started to identify a gamma band as well, which is really high frequency brain waves. Um, they haven't looked at it um, very deeply at this point, but they've found it associated with expanded states of consciousness in the experienced um, meditators. Um, across all lineages so it was a hallmark of people who had been you know meditating for those really long periods of time that were actually able to operate within this you know this gamma bandwidth which is is fascinating as well. And I think
1: you've touched on something really important which is that it it's it's kind of irrelevant how you decide to meditate. The point mm-hmm. is just meditate, <laughs> because yeah. as you say, the, it doesn't matter which path you take. The outcome through consistent practice is the same, and that is ultimately you know, to put it in my words, there's a mastery of consciousness going on. And we're mm. not just reactive. We're not simply responding to the world. We're actually able to be in a far more refined and sophisticated way of engaging with that external stimuli. And I think that idea that we're in alpha and theta at the same time, I, I'm so happy to hear that because so often what I believe I'm witnessing when I see women, you know, in the work that we do in the Institute operating as intuitive intelligence trainers is you know they have to be holding more than one brainwave state at a time because if they weren't they'd just be completely vaguing out on their client they'd just be off in the bliss themselves but they're able to stay really focused and attentive to their client as well as journeying into these really deep mystical states and i'm thrilled to hear that there's evidence of that because now it it sort of paints a much clearer picture of what we're doing
0: Yeah, 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 that's great. Probably the only other thing that I wanted to mention and they do talk about in the research is a third type um, is loving kindness. Oh, yes. And so that beautiful loving kindness meditation, they call it non-referential compassion. And so that's, you know, similar to the the heart math stuff where we connect in with the heart and, you know, allow that feeling state, you know, to penetrate through and it's producing specific um, and intense emotional states. And so it talks a little bit. I didn't go too much into it, otherwise the paper could have been 100 pages long. But I did give it a little mention there just to say that, you know, that that capacity is there as well. And, you know, when we look at how, you know, how um, energy becomes encoded, we're even looking at the different brainwave states over time that we can really see another layer. and I know the heart math has got a lot of research making all of that tangible anyway, but it's just really fascinating, again, how it comes from, you know, these traditional lineage that people have been doing for thousands of years, really, haven't they? We've only forgotten in the last couple of hundred.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely, yeah. And loving kindness meditation, as you say, is so akin to heart congruence. It's that idea of service before self. So I'm not just going into my meditation to reduce my stress or whatever it is, but I'm actually going into that state of, I love it, non-referential compassion. Like, I don't have to know what I'm feeling compassion towards, I'm just willing to cultivate that mm. towards all. And, you know, to know that it is part of, you know, the measurable benefits of meditation is is a brilliant thing to be able to further, you know, get over ourselves and just get onto our mats or, you know, sit up five, 10 minutes earlier and make that time Um, and you know looking at the markers of reduced anxiety and stress we know that intuition cannot come into a stressed out anxiety ridden state like we cannot they're they're not complementary at all so you know i'm going to infer from that that when we come into that regulation and we come into that uh more peaceful state then we are increasing our intuition and that's the goal right
0: Yeah, totally. And, you know, just on that as well, that one of the things that I found most fascinating with the heart math research is they found no difference between five minutes or 15 minutes. So it really only takes five minutes. Yeah, five minutes to change physiology. And they've done a lot of the objective research where they've measured different, you know, physiological parameters as well. And it's, you know, it's, it's really criminal that it's not mainstream. The same as the breath practice, like the last paper that that we wrote on the polyvagal theory and how we can actually modulate the nervous system through breath. Like it's that simple, but obviously it's not patentable. So it doesn't, you know, down the, down that rabbit hole again, but yeah, it's just amazing. The tools that, that we do have once, you know, once we're aware.
1: I agree. And that, you know, we, we say in the Institute, the body is the technology of your intuitive intelligence and everything, you know, is showing us even going back to the first paper you know that we are quantum beings that we are energy beings first physical second to everything that you've then revealed through you know the subsequent papers is that this is it you don't need anything else in order to be in your highest and most optimal state of being and it simply takes the willingness to show up to that and Mm -hmm. the awareness you know you mentioned the attention span as well which i think is so important that everything that we spend our time doing in our lives is reducing our attention span right so the way we consume information the way information is shared with us you know the the amount of time we spend consuming information through screens um, and sound bites you know now it's like 30 seconds is the maximum amount of time you get to convey anything um and it's it's having such a destructive effect on our capacity to sustain our attention so Of course, when someone sits down to meditate for the first few hundred times, that completely, you know, toddler like attention span. Is going to need to be supported to uh, change and adapt to a new way of working, and that it's 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 okay for it to be uncomfortable and awkward at first. You're going against the dominant paradigm, which says you know less attention, shinier, brighter. You know sound bites are the only thing we're worthy of, and actually we're worthy of so much more. And actually, can change our health, our well-being, our access to our intuition by making that commitment.
0: Yeah, definitely. And and it's all about practice. It's like anything. You know, no one, probably hardly anyone hopped on a bike for the first time and was able to do that, you know. And so, you know, try not to fall into self-judgment when your mind is going all over the place. You know, it is completely and 100% normal. I remember when I was first um, learning to or trying to, attempting to meditate because, you know, <laughs> I used to be like um and I would find I'd sit down and then I would catch myself but I'd already be over the other side of the room like something would come into my head I'd go oh let's go do that while I'm actually trying to sit still and so it took me a really long time to even be able to fathom this you know sitting still to start with so don't give up
1: <laughs> yeah you know I'm I'm like 30 years into my meditation journey and it's it's It only became pleasurable, I would say in the last decade and it's Mm -hmm. it's okay, you know, it was still I would have moments of pleasure moments of expansive connection but to actually say I could sit still and keep my body still for more than a minute was an un- incomprehensible idea. And now it's, you know, it's very easy, but I, there's still resistance, as I'm sure you experience as well. There's some days where it's like, oh, I will pay money not to sit down and meditate today. You know? And of yeah, course, we, know we need it most when we least want to do it and that is you know that is a hard thing to focus on and i do i am very personally motivated by that non referential compassion like if i can't figure out a reason why i should show up to my practice i'm very motivated by the idea of serving greater consciousness so i think find your motivation like it's okay to need a motivation especially on those days where it feels hard and and go at it in a way that feels joyful when when i cannot sit i will do a walking meditation yeah, I'll give myself permission to use the energy that's in my body and not not fight myself to try to be the perfect still yogi or meditator when actually I need to just go walk and focus on nature and the horizon.
0: Yeah, totally. And, and you know, there are so many different ways you can bring meditation into your life. It doesn't need to be, you know, sitting cross-legged while it's hurting, you know, for extended periods of time. It can literally just bring yourself back into the moment. Yeah, you know, definitely. if you love gardening, go out in the garden and sit in that presence. Yeah. And you know that that's it. It's about what actually brings us to stillness. It might be watching the sunrise, watching the sunset. And if we can bring in something that you, that we find joyful, it's going to be much easier to 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 keep doing it as well.
1: And as Nikki said, you know, five minutes, measurable change in five minutes. So there's never a reason why we wouldn't be able to factor this into our lives. Um, All right. I think that's where we're going to leave it. I would love to be hanging out more. And we've got a few people who've joined us um, and uh, just commenting and saying hello. And it's lovely to have you here. And I hope everyone can come back and watch this if you didn't get to see the full conversation, because, yeah, Nikki's written a brilliant article, or literature review. If you don't have the time to read it, come back here and uh, listen to this uh, summary of Uh, the findings, and of course, uh, you know, most importantly, please make that 5, 10, 15, some days an hour commitment to being in that state of being that will ultimately become a trait a personality trait you will actually feel good all of the time you don't have uh, most to. of the time we're still human we <laughs> are <laughs> working towards it yeah. <laughs> your meditation is going to change your personality for the better and i think that is you know most of us need a little bit of personality tweaking so <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for all your work and um, I've shared the (laughs) link to all three papers. You can also find uh, Dr Nikki's research fellow page on the Institute's website. Just go to the about section and she has her own tab um and you can read more about her and find her links to work with her i know there's a lot of amazing things coming up for you Um, so please uh yeah if you've enjoyed this conversation today go find out more about how you can take that revolutionary act and invest in an alternative alternative um, (laughs) non-dominant health practitioner um and yeah let's let's take good care of ourselves
0: yes good plan great thank you so much Thank you for listening. If you'd like to find out more about me, you can visit my website or you can follow me on the socials. All of the details are on the links below. And reach out at any time if I can support you along your journey. Take care.